feel like we should just go back to our living room. That'd be easier. Be a bit challenging on the recording, would it, Storm? Yeah. yeah, all right. Well, we'll carry on. Some do catch up uh, with the um, recording so we can all consider these things together. We're looking at the assembly uh, of God's people. And it first appears in Scripture in the book of Exodus, really, um, chapter 19, well, 14 or 15, with the Passover it's mentioned, and then it first happens in real time on, uh, in chapter 19 and then 20, right? So in chapter, if I recall correctly, around 14, 15, we won't turn there now, where the Lord is telling them, this shall be the beginning of months to you, in the Passover. Um, it says, and the whole congregation shall kill it, right? Uh, speaking of the Passover lamb. But in that case, on that evening, the whole congregation, each house was doing it separately. And so they were one congregation that God saw, but they were all apart. They weren't gathered together. Um, and it was at Sinai that they were all actually gathered together, you remember? And there were conditions. They were to come sanctified. This is the first place where uh, meeting, the people of God meeting with God was as a congregation. Not now um, Adam in the garden as a prophet. Not now Noah uh, coming into the ark and speaking uh, with, uh, or the Lord speaking with him, not Enoch before him, walking with God, not Abraham to whom the God of glory appeared and made a covenant, but the people of God as a nation, as a congregation. And this is quite a different dynamic. And uh, there were a number of things. One of them was to be sanctified, to come prepared for meeting. That was one of the basic principles. The first time the meeting of God's people together in the presence of God, as mentioned, they were told to come prepared, sanctified. And this has been, um, I don't know what to, how I would put it, reproof, reminder. There was a time uh, in my youth, uh, and I've sought, I'm um, seeking to... to um, be consistent and faithful in that practice again. There was a time as a young Christian, I was thoroughly prepared for every meeting. Uh, I was uh, ready. If I had been called on to do anything that I was, had a capacity to do, I was ready. I never um, just kind of stumbled out of bed into meeting. And that's how it, we ought to be. Um, and of course, if you've been up sick in the night or something, or if you're a mother and you're up with babies in the night, of course, you know, um, we're speaking about normal, normal um, circumstances. People are to be sanctified. And I believe that that is how we ought to approach meeting, Christian meeting. Sanctified, prepared in our minds. We're thinking about the, the occasion before in advance. We're preparing ourselves mentally and spiritually and physically. Again, <laughs> pull my socks up. Uh, adequately rested. 
and ready to be a company of priests, a nation, a kingdom of priests, to offer up spiritual sacrifices. And so we've looked at uh, a number of things, actually. So today, it's hoping to look at, uh, I mean, we've, we've looked at the, the meeting having, you know, what is going on in the meeting. There was the word of God, right? God spoke to them. And um, it's worship. And we see song, prayer, uh, praise, thanksgiving, um, the speaking of God. I think I've made comment. I don't remember if here in the context of our uh, study together or in private conversation, how far we have drifted in uh, casual Western Christianity. We were with some uh, lovely Christian people recently. And uh, I think, did they sing happy birthday after meeting? Not in the middle of the service, after meeting was over. That's not so bad, but you know. We, we, we can lose sight, you know. Christ, uh, church is a family gathering, but it's God's family gathering. Yeah, you're, you're wondering. I thought it was in the meet, middle of the meeting after the worship time before the preaching. And uh, God is gracious. He's a father. He's, he's not a tyrant. But we've drifted. We've drifted when we're doing those kinds of things. Um, great grace was upon them all. In the early days of the Christian church. Fear came upon every soul. And no one durst join himself to them. We noted, I think, historically that it was in um, church history. Charles Finney, I think, is credited or blamed, depending on how you look at it, with turning the Sunday morning service into an evangelistic meeting. Where you invite the unsaved to church. I believe that is uh, who is um, that practice is attributed to. Uh, before that, in institutional Christianity, on the one hand, the confessional churches, Presbyterian, if you were them, but Anglican, certainly Roman Catholic, although we wouldn't consider that really a Christian uh, denomination. They had parishes, right? And so the, the people gathering in church meetings were supposed to be parishioners, Christians. On the other hand, the Quakers, the, um, the, uh, after them, the, the Wesleyans, the Methodists, and various Anabaptist groups, believers were the ones gathering together. The church meeting was for believers. And right down backwards through church history. Um, and so we've been looking at the, the uh, nature of the Christian assembly. So I want us to zoom in um, and into Paul's letter to the Corinthians and look at what a meeting, what a New Testament church meeting uh, should look like. Um, I'm not, not going to try to be dogmatic because I believe that we should be emphatic and dogmatic on those things that the scripture is emphatic and dogmatic about and that we should be um, much less so on things that the scripture is much less so. We shouldn't make doctrines out of our opinions. 
and speculations. Is everyone with me on that? So, and even if it's clear in Scripture, if it's not clear to me, <laughs> then I certainly don't want to um, just take an opinion because you've got to have a position. You know, as a preacher, you're supposed to have a position on this and a position on that. Well, I've got a position as a disciple and as a learner and as a student of Christ. And I only ever want to teach what God shows me and not uh, presume upon something of which I'm uncertain. So let's look, at, uh, let's look at something here, shall we? In Paul's writing to the Corinthians, his first epistle to them. Uh, chapter 11. I want to skirt through from chapter 11 to 14 and pick out just a few verses, uh, almost one or two from each chapter. Not, not necessarily every chapter. We'll jump over 113 for now. 1 Corinthians 11 and uh, verse 17. Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not that ye come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when ye come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. Now, I don't want to focus on the carnality of the Corinthians and their divisions, but uh, a few specifics on the words, because um, words convey meaning. Oh, yes, so I've got... Somebody was talking to me, and that person's not here right now, about communication. Saying, you know, communication is just 15% words. And then there's tone and facial expression and body language and so on. And that may be, but God has chosen the printed word as his primary means of communicating with us. Without facial expression, without tone, without body language. And so... I think it behooves us to pay particular attention to how the words are written with as much precision as the scriptures indicate in each place. Verse 17 says, ye come together. Verse 18, when ye come together in the church. So I'm noticing there that phrase, the church, one is the church is singular, and immediately before the is the definite article. So, if I were to say, you know, someone uh, were to, if I were to ask a question at home, where's my hat? And one of my children would say, Dad, it's in the car. The implies I've only got one car. If I had more than one, Dad, it's in one of the cars. Or it's in your car if one of them was specifically mine. But the word the implies there's only one. The church. Now this epistle. This is, say yeah okay. This is pretty basic. I know but let, just follow along right. I don't mean to treat you like you're five. Just want to walk you down the path I've walked. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 1. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and thos, sos, <laughs> thos, 
Sosthenes, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth. The church of God, which is at Corinth. Paul is writing to one church at Corinth. It's important for us to understand what's going on. Paul would write to the Romans, to all that be in Rome. Now it's implied the believers. He's not writing to the pagan emperor. Not writing to Nero. Um, But to Galatia, a much bigger region, he's writing to the churches of Galatia. So we're dealing with here with one church at Corinth. Okay? So however many Christians there are, Paul views that all of them together at Corinth comprise one church. Let's keep that in the back of our mind or at the forefront because we're going to come up with something else later. And he's saying, when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. He's going to address their disorder at the Lord's table. When ye come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you. All right. Verse 20, when ye come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. And he addresses um, the disorder at the Lord's table and the judgment of God thereon. But there's some instruction for us in this. One, it suggests that there were lesser gatherings when they weren't all together in one place. That... um, and it's 1 Corinthians, not 1 Corinthians, Acts chapter 20, I believe it is. We looked at this at some length collectively before. Acts chapter 20, right? Verse 6, we sailed from Philippi and after the days of unleavened bread, sorry, we sailed from, away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came unto them to Troas in five days, where we abode seven days. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. I persuaded that the practice of the early Christians uh, in the apostolic times was that they met weekly to remember the Lord's death. However, I wouldn't want to try and introduce that as a change among us unless we were all persuaded the same. And so I invite everyone to search the scriptures on it to consider it. But that's, that's the persuasion I'm of, is that that is something that the Christian church did weekly on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. There are Christian groups that have maintained that and have believed that and... Um, Many Christian groups uh, that say, well, the Lord just said as often as you eat it, and so it's not specified. Some do it monthly, some do it annually, some do it twice a year. Uh, But my belief, based on that passage and um, a few others in the New Testament, uh, without relying on extra-biblical church history, which I think indicates the same thing, Uh, But I don't believe that extra-biblical church history is um, authoritative. So I believe from the scriptures that that uh, was a Christian practice. And I believe it ought to be so today. But uh, I'm 
certainly open to discussion and feedback on that. In verse 20, when ye come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. So Paul's addressing the Lord's Supper. It seems then that when the church came together into one place, it was for the Lord's Supper. And that they did not have the Lord's Supper in cell groups or other groups, but that the whole church at Corinth, all the believers at Corinth, all assembled themselves together into one place. Weekly to remember the Lord's death. That they might have smaller gatherings throughout the week. Perhaps daily, I don't know. Exhort one another daily suggests a lot of Christian interaction. But that um, on the Lord's day, they gathered themselves together. What John calls the Lord's day. On the first day of the week, they met together to have the Lord's Supper. It would seem that that would be what we call a Saturday evening. With the closing of the Sabbath, all the Jewish believers would now be home from synagogue and the Christian church would meet in the evening. I don't know, could be mistaken on that, but certainly that's how it seems was going on in Acts chapter 20. There Paul continued his speech until midnight. It's a long meeting and then to the break of day. I'm doubtful they had a 24-hour service. Um, The Jewish day starting in the evening. It would seem to me the most... uh, Likely, we've shifted now, Roman calendar and so on. I'm not suggesting we should have a Saturday night service. Um, But that's how it seems. There, you all come together into one place to eat the Lord's Supper. that's, That's the kind of church meeting we're looking at, where the whole church is together. There are other assemblies, other gatherings. I was looking at that a bit and, wow, what a What a big subject. Um, In chapter 5, Paul spoke of delivering someone unto Satan. When you be gathered together in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus, deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Remember that man living in horrible sin. And from there, our minds would go to Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered together in my name. There am I in the midst. And this is for purposes of authority. So there are other gatherings. that can be as small as two or three. Uh, there's lots to consider. Uh, there are the gatherings of the apostles and elders to sort out doctrine. But here, we're talking about the gathering of the whole church. That's what we're looking at. Congregational gathering. And so he addresses the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, as he calls it. When you, when you come together into one place. Now for them it wasn't, they were desecrating it, but that should have been, that was their intention, that was their profession. The whole church gathered together into one place to have the Lord's Supper. And uh, I believe that's what we should do. In chapter 12... I think it is. Where are we now? Oh, yes. So in chapter 12, he addresses some spiritual gifts. Now, this is not all. Let's, let's take a detour. Let's keep our finger in chapter 12, 1 Corinthians, and go to Romans. I believe it's chapter 12 as well, where we have gifts. Okay. Uh, verse 4 of Romans 12 As we have many members in one body, 
and all members have not the same office. So we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. All right, so we're tired. Uh, let me, let's take a little bit of a break here and give you an exercise. All right? Let's look at Romans 12, verses 4 to, uh, to verse 8, and compare them with 1 Corinthians 12, verses 1 to 14. And compare the gifts that are listed in each, in each passage and say what aspects of the passage are similar, uh, passages are similar, and what aspects are different. Now, I'll give you a disclaimer or a caveat. I have something specific in mind. This is where, you know, I want you to get the answer the teacher's thinking of, right? But if not, we'll roll with it. We'll have further revelation and we'll, we'll add to it. And we'll just all be blessed. But I do have something specific in mind. Two things. And I'm hoping that by studying, we'll make the same observation. All right? So we're comparing the list in Romans 12 with the list in 1 Corinthians 12 to see what's similar about the presentation. What analogy is he using that's similar And what is different about the kinds of gifts that are listed in each? Are we ready for a bit of discussion on that? It's good to get ourselves thinking at least, right? You know, it's because, I mean, it's good to hear preaching. I really enjoy that and try and follow along. But sometimes in the course of a sermon, you don't have the time to really stop and work through the thought and to meditate on the scripture and to, to... really uh, compare. So I wanted us to look at that. Um, All right. All kinds of questions here uh, we've been getting. Let's go with the easy one. What's the common analogy? Who wants to tackle the easy one there? One body, many members. That's easy. Both both uh, situations, uh, both passages, Paul uses that illustration, one body. In Ephesians, I think, he'll say there's one body, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Maybe it's not in Ephesians. Um, no, it's, anyway. Uh, all right, so what are some of the distinct or the differences? I'm looking for one in particular that... You would see between the kind. Let me let me give you an, an easier question, earlier question, subjective. Are either of these lists complete? All spiritual gifts listed in either of these? No. Okay. Um, so that's useful to know. Although some people make fast and loose with that, I remember being in a situation where uh, I think a, a, a pastor was teaching on spiritual gifts or giving some kind of a curriculum on it. There were 50. And you would go through and check off the boxes to determine your shape, your spiritual gifts. And they had clown ministry was one. Um, puppet ministry was another. And I just couldn't take the thing seriously. What's that? 
bus ministry. I don't know what Paul was doing. I guess not kind of bus Paul had going on is for his bus ministry, but was that? Chariot. Chariot ministry, yeah. So, I mean, I don't want to really descend into Elijah-style mocking um, of brethren. They're not prophets of Baal. But I really think they've jumped the shark with that kind of a list. Just because it appears to not be complete doesn't mean we can just make things up. So they're not complete. What then, what um, name a major difference you would see in the kind of category in Romans versus 1 Corinthians in that list? Who wants to swing the bat at that? Matthew? Okay. Okay, so um, that Matthew is seeing more supernatural gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 and more natural gifts in Romans 12, or less obviously supernatural. They would be made supernatural by the anointing, but they could easily be uh, carried on in the flesh without anybody, well, without the some of the participants noticing. One would hope some spiritual people would notice this is a void of divine. Any, uh, anything to add to that? So we got one's primarily supernatural and one has a lot of seeming natural. Anything else? I'm really hoping for something else, but I can introduce it. Matthew came really close by a question he asked, and if I'd answered it, it would have given him the answer. Speaking gifts, all right, versus some non-speaking gifts. That's true as well. They're pointing us in the direction. All right. For those that are actually uh, following along at, um, later by the recording, it would be a good activity to pause and to try and work these things out on your own before hearing our answers. Well, they've got some of them now. So here's what I see in 1 Corinthians 12. The list of gifts there would all work or function in a church meeting. They're not limited to a church meeting, but they would all be appropriate to be manifest. And that's what Paul is writing to them about. He's writing about church meeting. He expands and goes off into the greater body concept later in the chapter. But he's addressing, right? And this is the context. In Romans, he's talking about the whole, the whole life. Um, civil uh, obedience. <clears throat> he's dealing with the Christian life in and out of church. And so he addresses... Uh, a wider category, although the list is, is uh, sparse, right? Um, prophecy, notice he puts that as a head, as he does with the Corinthians, uh, as the primary gift to be sought after. Ministry, teaching, exhortation, um, giving, ruling, showing mercy. We would understand showing mercy, <laughs> to, I, I trust, to be what... Um, uh, Tabitha did, right? She uh, clothed the poor. She showed mercy. The Lord um, gave a parable 
And um, remember he was asked, who is my neighbor? And he told a parable of what we call the Good Samaritan. And at the end of the story, he says, which of these was a neighbor to him that fell among the thieves? And I think it was a Pharisee he was talking to, said, he that showed mercy. Right? So go and do that likewise. Showing mercy is not as it is abused in Christian circles. You've got the, the prophet brother, you know, and then you've got the mercy brother, and they're differing gifts and they're clashing. How can I put this? Hmm, I better not. Uh, that is misguided. That is a misguided notion. If you read your Bible, the prophets were the most merciful men going. And it is the same today. Moses. Moses made intercession for people who were out to stone him. The most merciful men in the Bible were the prophets. And then in the New Testament, the apostles. Showing mercy is ministering to the sick, the poor, clothing, feeding, um, helping the downtrodden. That's showing mercy. It's got nothing to do with all that judgmental prophet and I'm the mercy. It's just misguided, misguided thinking and misunderstanding the scripture entirely on that. Um, It's got nothing to do with those things. So showing mercy. There are people that, apart from their naturally empathetic and compassionate personalities, have an anointing from God that guides them in wisdom and discernment and decision-making and enables them to show mercy to people in various sorts of physical distress in ways that are very edifying and that preach Christ and, and proclaim they're necessary. Uh, you might notice... In, um, towards the end of 1 Corinthians 12, uh, verse, well, the second half of it anyway. Verse 20, now there are many members but one body, and the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. So two different kinds of gifts. The gifts that have perception and leadership, Addressing the gifts that um, have transportation and labor. The spiritual and practical. And they, they, the one cannot say to the other, I have no need of you. It's the whole thing. The body is tempered together. There are people who are not um, really apt public speakers. And the idea of making every man speak at the pulpit is misguided. If a man is separated unto a work that has primarily a practical ministry. Of course, he'll still have things to say for God. Every Christian does and should. But the emphasis of his gifting and ministry is often practical. And the anointing gives wisdom and direction to that so that it greatly furthers the kingdom of God. It's not just a a person who in the flesh is very, very helpful running around willy-nilly doing all kinds of stuff. These are spiritual gifts and, and they're to be honored. And we thank God for them. But Paul, in his address in 1 Corinthians 12, right? In chapter 11, he's addressing the assembly. Some believe that, you know, he starts addressing the assembly midway through when he's addressing the Lord's Supper. To me, it's quite clear that the head covering address has to do with the assembly as well. And that was the whole issue. 
And it's not that women weren't wearing a head covering outside the assembly. Of course they were. That was just basic modesty in those times. Um, but that they were taking their head coverings off once they got into meeting. But regardless, by the time we get to chapter 12, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles carried away unto these dumb idols, even as you were led. So <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 11, he's talking about meeting. Whether you want to pick it up at the start of the chapter like me, or when he gets to the um, Lord's Supper, Regardless, he's dealing with the assembly in chapter 11, in chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14. And he finishes chapter 14. Let all things be done decently and in order. It's still dealing with the assembly. So that whole passage has to do with Christian meeting. And so in chapter 12, he's talking about spiritual gifts as they function in the assembly. Right? <clears throat> and that's why he picks the ones specifically that he does. Um, where, where are we at here? Verse 7. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. Now we're not going to um, divert into a study on the spiritual gifts. We can do that another time. But we're looking at how the assembly should function. And one of the things we're seeing, brethren, is that... The will of God is that the Holy Spirit wants to manifest Christ through every member to profit the whole body. And he starts by saying, you know that you were Gentiles carried away unto these dumb idols, even as you were led. And then he talks about a speaking God. Right? The idols are dumb. And that has a long history in the Old Testament, Isaiah lampoons the, the foolishness of the idols, idolaters. We laugh about it with the children. You know, look at this. We read, you know. He, he, uh, he, he uh, cuts some wood and he fashioneth it to God. He falleth down. He prayeth to it. And with the residue thereof, you know, he, he burns and cooks and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And with part thereof, he maketh a God. And the other part, he prays. And he basically says, You dimwit. What are you thinking? This is Isaiah, the prophet, mocking the idolaters, bell boweth down, you know, um, in the, the ox carts straining under the weight of these elaborate idols that need to be carried around on ox carts. They're so useless. Right? So it has a, a long biblical history of addressing, you know, eyes have they, they see not, neither speak they through their throat. They that make them are like unto them. Dumb. Not dumb, stupid, dumb, unspeaking. Although the other might be there as well. <clears throat> they can't speak. They have brains. and you know, They think not either. And, and so <clears throat> he's, uh, he's addressing that. He's referencing all of that rich language of um, just uh, <laughs> uh, ridiculing the foolishness of idolatry. And he just passes by. You know that you were... Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols, even as you were led. And he, he just mentions, no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. You can tell a false prophecy by its content at one level. Then there's discerning of spirits. Content might be fine, but the Spirit's wrong. And in a meeting, uh, you need to discern that it's the Holy Spirit moving and not another spirit. 
No man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. Obviously, it's not just the words. Um, The devils were saying, thou art Christ. Right? They can formulate those words. But no one, and this is why the hymn writer said, no one can truly say that Jesus is the Lord. It's not that he can't utter the words. It's that he can't confess it from the heart unless the Holy Spirit has wrought that in him. Now, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And he goes on now. Um, We're not really on about spiritual gifts, but maybe this passage, the the language is a bit uh, challenging, and I'll share a bit on that then, just for these verses, and we'll come back to our theme. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. You have the triune God there, Spirit, Lord, and God. Let's, um, I wrote down a, an explanation of that passage, right? Because it can seem like just repetition. Let me, let me read that. Okay, so different gifts, administrations, and operations, right? That's what he says. It's different gifts, and then there's, uh, so um, prophecy is one gift and healing is another. Those are two different gifts. Okay, now there are different operations. Let's use prophecy as an example. There may be different administrations of the same gift of prophecy. One may be given to foretell future events, Uh, Like Agabus, reveal what's to come. Another may reveal what's happening now. Expose the thoughts and intents of the heart. Those are two different administrations of the same gift. So healing and prophecy are two different gifts, different gifts. Prophecy, one gift, but two different administrations. One is to foretell the future. Another is to expose what's hidden and going on. Those are two different administrations of the same gift of prophecy. Um, Now, both of these are the same gift, and they administer differently, different spheres. Now, within the same sphere, they may operate differently, right? Different operations. For example, one may use dramatic enactment, like Agabus. He tied his hands together with Paul's girdle. That's a different operation. So he's foretelling a future event, but he's got a different operation. Um... Or he might just be a speaker, like Jeremiah. He could see visions, like Ezekiel. Um, He might have, you know, ecstatic utterances, as they're called, like Anna and Elizabeth. So there is tremendous variety with God. And one of the lessons from that is to not be bigoted. God doesn't have to move in him the way he moves in you. Right? Different gifts. And then within the same gift, different operations. Right? One can be, you know, um, in their preaching can be more declarative, announcing. Another can be more expository in teaching. Right? Different gifts. Even amongst the prophets, one might be taken up with foretelling future events. Agabus, the only two prophecies we have, Agabus was foretelling the future. The only two records. There's going to be a great dearth. And for Paul, there's going to be a great beating or bondage. Future events. Um, In the very passage in Corinthians that we're looking at, 12 and 14, if there come in one unbelieved and unlearned, and 
all prophesy the secrets of his heart are made manifest. That's telling what's happening now. And maybe what's happened in the past that no one else would know about. So those are different, operation, uh, different uh, administrations of the gift of prophecy and then different operations. You, you might want to say a style, whether through a dramatic enactment or um, song, however. So uh, he, he, that's what he's talking about here. And his point is variety, it's all of God, it's one body. The Corinthians, if you had, pick one word. Brothers, give us one word to de- 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 um, describe the Corinthians. Brother Dave, you're not likely to get it wrong. You might not hit the one I'm after, but go ahead. Okay, yeah. So pick a different word. That's true. Pick a different one. Joseph? You've got to come up with a different one now. They're individualistic. You're getting warm. Matthew? <laughs> That's true. That's carnal. Begins with D. Divisive. And he's trying to bring them together. You could have said, taken a C one. Competitive. Right? The fact is they weren't together. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. And then I'm a prophet. And well, I'm a tongues guy. Right? So this is a whole problem. Is that they were carnal. Wow. But, <laughs> and Paul thought, I'm thankful for the grace of God in you. They used to be idolaters and really messed up, confused, like people are getting confused today. Uh, They had all of these problems. They'd come out of that, and now they were carnal. They, They had spiritual gifts, and they were using them to promote themselves. And Paul doesn't say, stop using those spiritual gifts. They're making you proud. Paul says, this is the way, charity. You, you've got a gift of prophecy. You say, oh Lord, I want to build up my brother. Not, I want to show off how spiritual I am. He didn't say stop prophesying. He said, do it in love. And let's establish some order. And in that lesson, we're getting a glimpse also into the nature of church meeting. Now, Abe, uh, Abe was talking with me about this, uh, this passage here. Uh, not this specific one. We're jumping around a little bit. Uh, in chapter 14, verse 26. How is it then, brethren, when you come together, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation. Let all things be done unto edifying. And Abe's question to me was, and I've asked myself the same question as I considered it, was Paul telling them this is how it ought to be, or was Paul describing how it was? And I said to him, I think it's the latter thing. Paul was saying, this is how it was. But he also was not saying how it should not be. It was this way because they were zealous of what? Spiritual gifts. And in fact, (laughs) go back to chapter 1, which reminds us to whom he's writing. Chapter 1, verse 4. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything ye are enriched by him, in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that ye come behind in no gift. These were the Corinthians. They were enriched by God in all knowledge and in all utterance. 
And they were not behind in any gift. So, as a church, the Corinthians were second to none in the exercise and manifestation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit that were available to the church in the apostolic age. And I believe that that is instructive for us and it is a, it's an example to us. It's a model to us in the same way that they were having the Lord's Supper and it was abused and Paul was sorting it out and we should be having the Lord's Supper according to how the apostle sorted it out. Then in the same way the apostle is sorting out their disorderly use of spiritual gifts it is entirely positive if we had the same amount of manifestation of spiritual gifts in our assembly. It should just be ordered properly. You following it? So although he's not saying every church ought to have the same amount of spiritual gifts, it's certainly a positive thing. If we would, and therefore why not something? I mean, if they're given of God, why wouldn't we ask for them? Why wouldn't we pursue them? I don't see a single bad one in the list. That one's damaging. We don't want that one. Um, There's nothing like that. They're given every good gift descends from above. So these are all good gifts and they're all useful. I'm just a man, but I despise useless things. My children will, will tell you that some of their stuff, it's standing on the property is in peril and they have to justify a use for it because clutter is something I want to get rid of (laughs) the younger they are the more precious stuff they have that to me is junk you know and this thing is going to make a hasty exit off the premises God doesn't give useless things to his church the gifts of the Holy Spirit are good and they are necessary And the variety, the vast variety there is in God enables us all to appreciate and depend on one another and honor one another. We haven't time to go into it all. This is not an excursion into spiritual gifts, but it does give us an insight now into the church. So, verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 14, If therefore the whole church be come together into one place. Again, right? We talked about the church and uh, when you be gathered together, when you all come together into one place, that was for the Lord's Supper, remember? Let's look at it again in chapter 11, uh, just to be clear. So we we started, I think, with this passage, um, verse 17 of chapter 11, uh, that you come together, not to the better, for the worse, for first of all, when you come together in the church... But then in verse 20, when ye come together, therefore, into one place. Again, here we are. Now we're in chapter 14, and it's the same uh, thought. If, therefore, the whole church be come together into one place, and all speak with tongues, and there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers, will they not say, you're mad? Now, there's instruction there. Earlier, he... uh, Oh, yes. Um, Where are we? Okay, we'll read that passage then. Verse 23, we've read. Verse 24. But if all prophesy, and there come in one that believeth not, or one unlearned, he is convinced of all, he is judged of all. 
So looking at verses, uh, and thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest, and so falling down on his face, he'll worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. I mean, honestly, brethren, I mean, you, you, could, you could argue this is an opinion, but I do think it's clear. The language of the apostle in verses 23 to 25. And there come in those that are unlearned, in verse 23. Verse 24, if all prophesy, and there come in one that believeth not. Does this sound to you like the Christian assembly was centered around having visitors? Or that visitors might happen to come in? But not necessarily. It was a possibility. But it wasn't something that was a certainty. And it was therefore not something they were all working to try and accomplish. Otherwise he would have said, look, what will all the visitors that you bring think? If that's what was going on. So if there, look, he goes from uh, verse 23. And there come in those that are unlearned. And people that like to go to the Greek will say, and those, the plural is not even in the Greek. you know, And there come in unlearned, which could be singular. But he does say unbelievers, so that's got to be plural. And by the way, I think all the words should still be there, regardless. But in verse 24, he narrows it down to one. It's clear that the church meeting, the purpose of the meeting was for believers. The purpose of the church meeting was for edification of believers, not evangelism of sinners. But if the lost would come in, the whole church should be so filled with the Spirit of God that the Spirit of God could now move through the body to address the needs of that wayward unbeliever and bring him to Christ. That's the context. That's noteworthy. The assembly is primarily for believers, but should be welcoming if God providentially brings in an unbeliever. And James suggests a similar attitude. God's family gathering. Verse 23. The whole church become together into one place. And that's what, I, what we're looking at. The assembly. There are other kinds of church meeting. We mentioned earlier the apostles and, and elders getting together for doctrinal meeting. This is the whole church meeting. And if all prophesy. Now, I was asked a question earlier, and I ducked it like a good teacher. And it was 1 Corinthians eleven sixteen. What does he mean, churches? If any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither churches of God. I said, you're not supposed to be reading in verse 16. We start in verse 17. And ducked it. But I did go on to explain. Paul is saying all of the churches have this practice. Now, here's... Here's what I want us to think about on this one. Verse 34, right? So at the end of all of this, um, God is not the author of confusion. So he's talked about in, verse, in chapter 12, speaking gifts and the variety and the body. In chapter 13, he said, look, it's all got to be done in love. It's useless without love. And so in 14, he tells us how to go forward now. Um, 12 is about the body, 13, love, 
is, is the undergirding, and 14, he's now introducing order and regulation. And at the end of all of that, verse 34, let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they're commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. Now, there's one word there that really caught my eye, because there's some question, you know, some people, see, women can't prophesy in meeting, because they're told to keep silence. And I, I get it, I understand but I think there are some problems with that interpretation. The biggest one we looked at was on the day of Pentecost, when all the men and women were together. Joel, Peter says, this is what Joel prophesied about. I'll pour out my spirit, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. And then they were. The women were speaking with tongues just like the men. And that was the first church meeting, and I don't think God went after it. Oops, well, we've got to stop that now. Paul, get on that. That's not what happened. I read verses 34 and 35. One word jumped out at me. What word is that? It's a departure from what we have been looking at before. That one word. Remember? No? No? One word. No? No? I mean, if you go through them all, then we'll get there eventually. (laughs) we've looked at church but you're close you're really close really really close Uh, no we've looked at those this is a departure churches Churches. how many churches he's who's he writing to the churches of Corinth he's writing to the church at Corinth and then he said um, when you all gather together into one place. He's been talking about that. And so he says, let your women keep silence in the churches. He's writing to the Corinthians, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. And he says, let your women keep silence in the churches. I suppose you could take that a few ways. What I understand that to mean is that they weren't always gathered together in one place. And that when they were gathered in smaller groups, they would have free discussion about what went happened in meeting on the Lord's Day. What was preached, what was prophesied, and there would be questions and there would be answers. There would be challenges and rebuttals. And during those times, the women were to keep silent. That's how I would understand that. Because those were smaller churches. Greet the church in so-and-so's house when he's writing to a larger church. You have churches within the church. And so it is with, there's one church in heaven and earth, one big church, but there are local churches in each city. And evidently, within that one church at Corinth, there were smaller churches I suppose some would call them their cell groups and what have you. Uh, it, this is how it appears. Bears further study. I'm not trying to be dogmatic on it, but we do have to make sense of the passage. And if he's saying, let your women keep silence in the churches, 
And he's saying, if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home. And nothing in the preceding chapters suggests that there's any dialogue going on. The inference is that in smaller groups they would have meeting and they would have more interactive discussion, dispute, question. And that the women weren't to get involved in that. And that if they had questions, they could save that discussion. But that that stricture, let your women keep silence in the churches, was not applied that they may not prophesy or speak with tongues or pray as they then did but that they must not get into the disputes and the doctrinal discussions and the questioning and the interrogations that would happen in the smaller churches within the large church of Corinth. That would be how it would seem initially. Bears more, more um, study on that. <clears throat> We're looking at order. Uh, I'd like to mention one thing about prophecy there, just as a by-the-by, and, uh, and then come back to the, the church meeting. And it has to do with um, the prophet. Verse 29, let the prophet speak two or three and let the other judge. Verse 30, if anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let the first hold his peace For ye may all prophesy one by one, that all may learn, and all may be comforted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Now, again, this is a common, I'm surprised at it really, a common misunderstanding. Teaching is not prophesying primarily. There can be an anointing of God that causes certain teaching on certain occasions to function prophetically. But don't make the exception the rule. We have thorough example and instruction in the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, of what prophecy is. It's a supernatural, the word of the Lord came. And you'll see quite often it came in real time while the circumstance was going on. I think we have this prayer, I think it was... Uh, Jehoshaphat, when they're surrounded and he prayed, then came the Spirit of God upon such and such, the son of such and such, and he prophesied. That is the kind of thing Paul has in view. It's not talking about a brother who was really blessed with something in his, in his uh, devotions, and he comes to meeting to share that. That's good, by the way. Do that, brothers. But that's not prophecy. And even if the Lord takes That and makes it prophetic in the moment. That's not what the apostle has in view. And the language is very plain. If anything be revealed to another that sitteth by. This is what's going on in real time. So one is moved by the spirit of God. To prophesy not speak with tongues as on the day of Pentecost. They all spake with tongues as the spirit gave them utterance. Well instead of it being tongues it's a prophecy as the spirit gives utterance in real time. And most Christians in North America today have really little or no knowledge or experience of that. And it's a shame. Because uh, Christian experience in North America, in the West generally, is largely human self-effort trying and not doing very well to live by the Sermon on the Mount. 
I think the facts just bear that out. And so now every spiritual speaking is labeled prophecy. And brother, take your hat off. No, I'm not prophesying. We're just having a conversation. Prophecy is supernatural. It's revelatory. And um, you're talking about somebody is prophesying by the Spirit. And as it did when Mary greeted Elizabeth. And Elizabeth prophesied under an inspiration of the Spirit. And then that set Mary off. And she prophesied under inspiration of the Spirit. That's the kind of dynamic. Not exactly that. But that's the kind of dynamic we're talking about. Where the Spirit of God moves in one and he's prophesying or she is. And then the Spirit of God wants to bring something forth from another. And the, the first should now recognize the ordering of God and be silent while this one. Because God is orchestrating and he, this Holy Spirit is like the conductor of the orchestra. And he's bringing forth, not now, oh, I'm going to keep prophesying. And you've got this competition, which is what the Corinthians were doing. Can you just look, I'm prophesying. Paul is establishing order. Let the first hold his peace, right? You're loving one another. You're a body. And God has now brought it forth from you. And he started with you. And now he's bringing something forth from the other. And you keep quiet. And let this one come. He says, let them be done by two or at the most by three. And I am not certain that that is meant as a carved in stone regulation that must never be breached. Or if it was um, a commentary on the jostling uh, for supremacy that was going on. And he's just reining it in. I mean, I, I recognize the language does is pretty clear. Let it be by two or at the most by three. Um, and if I hadn't had uh, been in meetings where that limit was exceeded and seen God move mightily, uh, I might just have no second thoughts about it. And I realize basing your interpretation of Scripture on experience is not, not really a good way to do theology. So certainly open for discussion on that. The point being here, this is not, you know... Brother Dave speaking and he was scheduled to speak. And then I decide, you know what, I'm speaking this morning, so you're up first. That means you've got to sit down and now I'm taking over. That, that's just like... No, but that's not... I'm the one be, I would be the one trying to bump you out. I would be the one out of order in that scenario. That's not what that scripture is about. Scripture is about what the Bible calls prophecy not what people commonly call prophecy. So it's order. And this is the thing. Let's look at this, brethren. And uh, I'll close my presentation. We can have brief discussion if we want. Question, comment. Verse 23. If therefore the whole church become together into one place. Verse 24. If all prophesy. This would seem to suggest more than two or three, which is why I say I'm not considering it carved in stone. And there come in one that believeth not, or one unlearned. He's convinced of all, he's judged of all. And thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest. And so, falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. The Spirit of God manifesting himself in and through his people in the assembly reveals the presence of God to an unbeliever. That's what's supposed to happen. Verse 26, he makes a comment. When you come together, every one of you 
hath. And he lists a variety, a psalm, uh, a doctrine, a tongue, a revelation, an interpretation. And he's saying, look, let it all be done unto edifying. The thing I want to focus on here, they were zealous of spiritual gifts. Paul says, seeing that you're zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church. Um, everyone had something. Now, probably in a large meeting, not everyone could speak all at once. Or, you know, you'd have to have your turn next week. Probably. But I'd like to, each of us, to encourage ourselves. Do you come to church to give? Now, you give just by coming and being a loving, faithful Christian presence. So that's a blessing. So you're doing that. But, so then the next one, can we lift our game even higher? Right? Uh, the Corinthians, <laughs> they were an example of what not to be. But they were all, and they gave us the opportunity to be told what we ought to be. But in this, they were an example that's entirely positive. They were zealous of spiritual gifts, and they were not deficient in a single spiritual gift. And that is presented as a good thing. Paul blessed them for that. You come behind in no gift. You're enriched in all knowledge and all utterance. Some in our midst are very shy and unspeaking. And there's no shame in that. And I would never want us to be a place where people who are like that felt guilty or pressure to come up with something. All right? Let that never be. God has made different ones different. And uh, we should all be blessed with each one as they are. Amen? All right. Having said that... Our God is a speaking God, and we can all be seeking. So, so there are some, whether they are some, whether they're that way because they're just shy, or as my one brother said, if you've got nothing to say, don't advertise it. Think about that, right? So you talk a lot, and you reveal that you've got nothing to say. So, <laughs> so, um, so he advised against that. That's good advice. So there are some people that, that they just enjoy listening. That's fine. Uh, and, so they, or, and some are deathly afraid of speaking in public. And that's fine. Um, as long as every one of us will do anything the Lord commands us to in the moment. Right? But the default, if you're a non-speaking person, is to be quiet. And that's fine. And some of us have to rein it in. Right? <clears throat> I'm going to know when to do that. Every valley shall be filled. Every mount shall be brought low. So, and some just by conviction believe that they shouldn't speak in meeting. Unless they really believe the Holy Ghost is moving. So whether they just prefer to listen, or they're shy... Deathly afraid of speaking in, in large groups. Or they have a conviction against it. But all of those people would be willing to speak if the Holy Ghost gave them something to speak. I believe that's true of everyone in our congregation. So my challenge would be, alright, then really seek the Lord for something from the Holy Ghost to speak. Because everyone will be blessed 
if any brother or sister speaks something that the Holy Ghost gave. And so, without a burden of guilt or pressure, but a loving, gentle exhortation, let us all seek the Lord for some word, sometime, and another, and another, as the Lord wills, because it's all his will, but with the attitude, Lord, give me something more, because you already have something that you're blessing the church with. Give me something more to edify and bless and build your body. How's that, brother? Is that? Can we all affirm that? Amen. <clears throat> um, that's really the, the thing we want to look at. Follow after charity, verse 14. Uh, chapter 14, verse 1, sorry. And we, we've established that already. Follow after is not just like jump, jump. It's a, a hunting term, a military term. It means sprinting full tilt to catch an elusive prey. Think of Asahel chasing Abner in that war. And uh, gets an idea. Follow after charity. Hunt it down. Take captive. Um, and desire spiritual gifts. Right? Seek then that you may excel to the edifying of the church. Then we can look at let all things be done decently and in order. And that's something to look at another time. What, what will that look like? If we have a situation where everyone's speaking, what would decently and in order look like? Right? And that's what the apostles laid out. In assembly where we're all gathered together in one place. More to come. Any comments, questions, corrections, encouragements? In our, pro- in our congregation? No, I'm speaking oh. in general. Okay. Yeah, sure. Well, that would be when we study spiritual gifts, right? Right, yeah. So, some people, I think with a lot of the evangelical churches stumble over, is if God is speaking revelatory, as it were, that that seems to contradict Okay, so that's where we've got uh, two things going on now. So your your question is, we should sometime look at the difference between prophets and prophesying. In other words, the office of a prophet versus just any Christian prophesying. And then that in evangelical community, there are large bodies of believers that would believe that if there is a functioning gift of prophecy, as, as like Paul sets out here, functioning today, that that would undermine the notion that we have a complete revelation in the New Testament? Well, I mean, we can look at that, but off the cuff I would say, Agabus's prophecies are completely unaffected by the complete New Testament and don't undermine it. They'd be just, if they had the whole New Testament, they would have still needed Agabus's prophecies. That the dearth was to come, and they could, because that was for practical purposes, preparation. And for Paul to know individual guidance in his own life. The whole New Testament canon would not have helped Paul know what was coming for him. That was prophetic. And so it's a misnomer. It's, we're not talking, when we talk about 
prophecy and prophets, we're not talking about adding new theological revelation to the New Testament. We're talking about God um, speaking in the moment in his church. And that, was, that, that picture is seen in the Old Testament. You had the priests who had the law. And you had the prophets. So the priest's job was to teach. And the Levites to, to teach the word of God. To read the Torah and to expound it. Week by week. Day by day. That was it. And if they did it with a pure heart, God would bless it and his word would, would uh, take root in the hearts of the people. The prophet was to give immediate guidance in specific activities that had nothing to do with, um, when I say had nothing to do, it, was on a, it didn't have any bearing on the commandment to keep the Sabbath. Right? So you see, when armies are attacking them and they needed to know what to do, and God would reveal that to the prophet. And that had no bearing on the law. It didn't undermine the law. It didn't add to the law. It was telling them what to do with this army that's coming at them. So the gift functioned that way in the Old Testament times. And that's how it functioned in the New Testament times. Um, and it's not the prophets. It's the apostles that God used to establish the doctrines of the New Covenant. So there's that. Seems pretty basic to me. I hope that's not too facile an answer. But. All, right. All right. Well, even with that, we managed to go a little longer. One of you brothers like to uh, stand and pray and commit our time to the Lord in prayer?